0: Hello, my name's Jane Daker. Welcome to this Medical Women Talking podcast. Medical Women Talking is a series of recordings of informal interviews with a range of women doctors from different specialties and backgrounds who've had successful careers in medicine. I'm a proud physician and have had the privilege of a very fulfilling career. As I get older and have reflected on my own journey, I've become increasingly passionate about helping other women to achieve their potential in medicine. Combining life and a career can be challenging, and it sometimes feels extremely difficult to keep going. The women in these conversations have all found a way to thrive and have achieved great things. I hope that you'll be inspired by their stories. The podcasts are available to download in any order, so that you can listen and be inspired whilst doing other things. Happy listening. Today, I'm talking to Jennifer Dixon. She's the Chief Executive of the Health Foundation. She qualified as a doctor, but has had a career in policy. This is something that some people may want to do, because clinical medicine isn't for everybody. She's been hugely successful in that, but has done things differently. So I commend her approach to you. Please listen and learn. Can we just start off by you talking about your career journey so far? So why did you decide to become a doctor?
1: (laughs) Well, I suppose uh, two reasons, really. One was I I really liked science. I was uh, quite fierce about it and really interested at the right time that you choose your A-levels. And I also, you know, like many people, it's sort of a cliche, isn't it? I kind of felt I wanted to do something with purpose and help. Um, so I think those are the two main reasons. But the other thing was I was very interested in at that point in um, uh, international travel. And in particular, I was very interested in East Africa uh, for various reasons. And so I thought that if I trained in medicine, that I might be able to travel a bit, but particularly might be able to contribute to um, to health somehow in, in East Africa. I had no idea how, but I nevertheless, that was so those three reasons, I think, were the main ones.
0: Um, thank you. And so how did you
1: go about that? Go
0: about the getting through your career in it and getting to achieve your, your aims.
1: Yes. Well, uh, I think the f- <laughs> I think the first thing to say is that my aims were sort of blown off course pretty early on. <laughs> I, I think the first thing was um, I did actually take a year off between school and university and I went to Kenya and I um I, I taught chemistry and physics in a bush school right on the Uganda, Kenya, Uganda border. Uh, and actually, to be honest, I was still deciding whether to do medicine or not. Um, I was in two minds because one part was very arty and the other part was very sciencey. But nevertheless, I went there and then I decided, well, I perhaps ought to do medicine before I figure out what else to do with the arty side. So I I then went to medical school, Bristol, which was fantastic. And and part of the detour started when um, at medical school, I just got really interested in student union politics and got elected onto the Student Union Council. And I just got very interested in um, party political, uh, you know, the, the um, just politics more generally, and um, why the country was run as it was, what was the role of the state, um, why was the health service constantly underfunded, it seemed. So it, as I was going through medical school, I was particularly interested in those things. And over time, my interest in the science was still there, but it got superseded by domestic considerations about politics so then that that set up a kind of um uh almost a conflict in my own mind as to whether medicine itself, enjoyable though it was with the science and the patients, was ever was going to fulfil this other need, which was really to consider the state of the country. Uh, this sounds rather grandiose, doesn't it? But you know, the, the state of the country, why we set up the health system as it was, why the public sector was as it was, why we made certain political decisions about the state. So, so there was that kind of tension. But I carried that throughout and um, finished medicine um and then went on to do house jobs um uh, but that tension grew and grew and uh, at some point later on which we can get on to it it uh it became too difficult to sustain and i had to jump way one way or the other and actually i then retrained into policy analysis
0: so that's a a, a really really interesting thing and something that i think I can see now in quite a lot of young people coming through medicine at the moment that they that they have the opportunity at university and beyond to look at the system and say, well, this isn't right. How can we uh, how can we look at it? How can we make it better? It sounds as if that was the kind of thing. And I think there are lots of people now, given the NHS that we currently are working in or health systems that we currently work in, probably think the same way. But there isn't a
1: proper career track or is there? So it's a good point there, Jane. And I was just reflecting on this point recently because I am um, in a nice position of being able to select Harkness Fellowships. I don't know if you know this fellowship programme. For those listening, it's a really interesting opportunity to spend a year in the United States. Um, it's sort of mid-career year for a year and um, we um, are in selecting a uh, you know, lot of candidates, a lot of whom are doctors and what's absolutely clear is they are doing masses the- these are people around 29, 30 and they have been clinical um, fellows at the Department of Health, at NHS England, they've been Darsey fellows, they've gone to NICE and had all sorts of attachments to different parts of the system in the way that it just simply wasn't possible for somebody like me. I mean, you were considered slightly weird if you veered off the clinical track. Um, But now it's much more acceptable, which is fantastic progress. And um, I mean, at some point, I mean, there's no doubt that young people have a wider, some have a much wider purview and really don't want to be just boxed into clinical medicine. Some really do, and that's completely fine, but some really don't. So I think it's more and more possible to forge a path to combine both of these things. And I think that's really, really healthy. It does mean that we might lose some people from the clinical cold phase to to work in sort of um, the system more widely, so to speak. Um, But I think that's really healthy and I think what we need to do in the future is to enable a kind of almost revolving door to happen between um, people who are on – want to do clinical work and also want to have this other purview. So that's that's progress made, but there's still a lot more progress, I think, to allow more flexibility for people to stretch the other talents that they have. And, you know, in my my generation, which was a long time ago now, it really was quite binary. You either did clinical medicine or you jumped ship and found some other landing spot that allowed you to develop these other things. And in my day, the real uh, jumping off point was public health that allowed you to do that. And so that's one of the reasons why soon after I did five years of clinical medicine. And then I realised that I needed to stretch this other bit. And, you know, taking a year off to do the MSc at the London School of Hygiene in Public Health being exposed to public health did help me get off the wards to enable to myself to think about which channel was best to sort into uh, was it really medicine or was it public health or was it something wider? So I need so so public health was the only route to almost try to 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 examine that and 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 think and to sort yourself into a different realm. Now you can do it much earlier. so that's fantastic and I really encourage people to do that where they can.
0: I, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I once heard somebody say that if you're interested in patients, you can sometimes have a much more positive impact on the patient in front of you by standing back and pulling policy levers than you are by just treating the person with diabetes. So presumably, you it took me a long time to realise that. You must have realised it earlier on, I suppose.
1: Well, I suppose what what I felt, you know, the the psychologists have this really <laughs> sort of phrase of it. There's a bit of pathology called splitting, and and I think I probably exhibited this split, so that this sort of on the one hand there was a science sort of side, and the other side there was really a completely different side, which was really interested in policy and economics. Um, and uh, I couldn't see then how these two things could fit. Um, now, as I say, it's much easier. But actually with the medics that I see who i come quite a lot come to me around the ages of around twenty nine thirty they they've achieved a lot they've got to a particular position and they look thinking to themselves, is this, is this what all there is? Is there something more that I can do? So it's a classic. And that's when these people apply generally to this fellowship programme and other things. And, um, and I think it's really important to pause at that point and just reflect because there's still a lot of working life ahead. How are you, are you sorted into the right channel? Are you doing the right blend of things for you that given your talents? Um, and how best can you forge a way to combine things that really would work And a lot of medics, in my experience, actually are not really interested in the politics or the economics uh, side of things, as as, as I was. But they are interested in um, bigger service changes, how best to make improvements across services, for example. That's closer to home. Or they might be interested in um, NICE and what NICE does. So there's a number of sort of channels that you can take which aren't directly patient care but nevertheless are linked to it. And it doesn't have to be, on the one hand, you're on the wards dealing with your patient with diabetes and the next minute you've got an attachment to the Cabinet Office. It doesn't have to be quite so stark. It could also be something that's related to your work, but you want to run, you want to be part of, say, a national collaborative to improve diabetes, diabetes care across the country, working with one of the clinical directors. So that's, so that's there's, there's a whole range of things now. And if it doesn't exist, I think you just... Just go out there and make try and make it happen. And you know, just forge a path as people before have done. Um, and it's it's all to go for, I think, if, if you've got the energy.
0: <laughs> so I mean, it sounds as if that's what that's what you did uh, yeah. when you you say you decided to to jump ship, but in fact, uh maybe you were just driving the ship in a different direction. Um, so how did that feel at the time? Because that strikes me as being quite a brave thing to do. And sometimes, particularly as women, we we don't really feel terribly brave about our careers. How did that feel? What was it that drove you on to do that?
1: Yes. Well, I, I kind of what, what happened was I, so I did five years of pediatric, uh, you know, clinical medicine. I was doing pediatric medicine sort of um um, neonatal a lot actually, and I decided to keep a diary. Um, and uh, I, and I said to myself, if my diary on reflections doesn't change much in the next year or two, I've really got to do something about it. And the diary was 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 mostly it was mostly about have I what have I learned? Have, am I kind of am I moving forwards not in a career way but in intellectual way? Am I and and, and in in pediatrics I wasn't really. So I so then I decided to apply to do public health I I didn't know what I was doing to be honest but somebody did say if you do this public health um, course to you know to become a consultant in public health if you start the training course then you can have a year off to do an MSc at the London School of Hygiene so that's what I did and, and that was the, what that did for me was it exposed you to all sorts of things um to to be able to sort yourself more fully, So you were exposed to statistics, epidemiology, communicable disease control, sociology, policy and economics, et cetera, et cetera. And it soon became obvious. it was it was like catnip. I was quite quite surprised. the The policy and economics side was just like I suddenly felt alive. and uh, <laughs> so, um, so I then thought okay I'm I'm this is back to my student union roots there's obviously something there that really is the the, the basic denominator of which science was grafted onto the top so I better I better take this seriously and so I, I basically pursued that Jane and um was lucky enough to, to do a hardness fellowship in the United States just after the MSc so I really wallowed in you know healthcare reform US style and got into you know Cap- Capitol Hill interviewing all these senators and congress people and in the in the centre and then in the various states and really did a political study about why healthcare reform was so blocked in the United States. Um, and I, th- then I came back, I just thought, this, this is the thing for me. So I ended up doing a PhD at the London School of Hygiene, not on policy, actually, but on quantitative analysis, because I thought if I'm a policy analyst, I'm really going to have to understand the quant. So I taught myself Bayesian <laughs> Bayesian modelling, multivariate analysis, all that stuff, just to, just to be able to feel that I was tooled up. Uh, so it's almost like retraining after medicine uh, up to the same standard that I had felt I had got to in medicine. So I really felt it. I was retrained, not, not additionally trained as a medic, but retrained. Um, and, and so that's what happened. And then, um, I was all set for an academic life, but then I, uh, I got a call to the, to, I mean, the King's Fund just hoiked me in there. And then as soon as I was in the King's Fund, it was just an environment that really suited me. Um, so, so, so I was at the King's Fund working in their policy department, really loved it. And, um, uh, there's a very famous moment where uh, if you don't if you'll allow me a little anecdote I was talking to my good my lovely boss there at the time um Nick Mays who's still a professor at the London School of hygiene and uh, we'd we'd written an editorial about the state of the NHS and what needed to be done about it I mean we were so grandiose really and uh, I said to Nick why don't they ever listen to us if only they ever did this and at that time I received a phone call from the Department of Health with Would I like to go and work in what I would consider a job to to be the policy advisor of the chief executive of the NHS, Alan Langlands? It was just it was just priceless moment. Uh, So um, anyway, so and then I went into the department for a couple of years before then coming out and then continuing the policy analysis route. So anyway, sorry, that's rather a long winded way. But that's 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 what happened, really.
0: So the passion for what you do comes through. Um, have you had highs and lows? What have been the best bits, and what have been the worst bits?
1: Um, I think the, I think the, I think I think what happened just to link that back to your last question, which I failed to answer, Jane, which was it didn't feel like a risk. All of this it, jumping off clinical medicine was a bit of a risk, but I always felt I could go back to it if things really felt if I felt my proverbial. So I had a kind of insurance policy. Um, but to be honest, once I'd really got into the the, the, the groove that I was have described, it was so energizing and so fulfilling that I didn't feel that there was any risk in, involved at all. And I still had my GMC, you know, registration number, I could still go back if the worst came to the worst. So there have been a lot of highs, I guess, is the answer to, mm-hmm. to the problem. Um, I haven't felt as if there have been enormous barriers at all. Um, I'm uh, that the 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 highs have been where we've done a piece of analysis and really influenced something, and there are quite a lot of examples of that. That I've, I think we've I think at least I hope we've made a difference. But and I, I think helping people. I think helping my main contribution, my main interest, is is not to dare I say it that that there are people who are really motivated by making change. And and for me, I I shouldn't confess this, Jane, but that is is a secondary thing for me. The primary thing is that we we have more insight in order to act better. So it's what Rudolf Klein used to say. Rudolf Klein was the doyen of um, policy analysis, really, for many years. Um, um, Wonderful writer and academic. And he wrote a book called Only Dissect. So what he meant by that was if you just dissect the issues more fully and gain the insights, then you can act more appropriately. And so I think I'm in that camp, which is much more of an academic orientation. So, So anyway, the highs would be insights, would be landing analysis, would be Helping helping to the NHS just just strengthen its arguments for more money is is quite a significant sort of groove that I've been on, um, and and helping to them to learn from other countries, um, so lots of lots of examples there. Um, uh, the lows, I, w- I don't think there've been many lows really. I mean, I had a moment where early on in my career, um, I produced a piece an analysis with some colleagues. Um, on GP fund holding, which if you remember was very contentious at the time. And Virginia Bottomley, who was the Secretary of State at the time, stood up in Parliament and, and referred to this paper by Dot. And, and she said, this was not the best paper the BMJ have ever published, she said, because it, it was counter to what the poli-. so that wasn't really a low, but I got a bit paranoid that I might be followed around by a black Mariah at one point. Um but 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 no, that I don't think there have been lows. I think it's I think. The lows are more when you've got a political environment where no one's listening and it's just really disappointing and depressing. And we've had a lot of that recently, haven't we? So I think that's more generally it. Okay.
0: that. That's great. So so you've talked very much about what's inspired you and driven you and your your sort of your academic approach, really, to policy, which I have to say is welcome. But it is rather depressing when it feels like nobody's nobody's listening. I think we 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 all get that. So so along the way, who's been helpful to you? Where have you found your inspiration?
1: Um, Well, I think. Um, you know, everyone is helped by a lot of people, and uh, and um, so so I suppose lots of people have influenced me along the way. I think um, I've never um, I've never had a mentor. I've never I've always probably totally erroneously felt I could figure this out. But and I think that's dangerous to think that. But nevertheless, that's what I have, have thought. But there are a couple of people I think who. Along the way have really been very, very insightful in different ways. One of them is Alan Langlands, who was my who was the chief exec of the NHS um, um, when I was working with him at the Department of Health. And I think I've learned most from him because he's just so very wise and insightful and deeply human. And coming from a different tradition to me, you know, obviously male, older, a manager. But seemed to have a really all-round intelligence and was very, very interested in, very strategic and very interested in people. And I just learned a lot from that because someone like me is is can be quite, uh, early on in my career, is quite fierce and almost quite robotic about science. You know, really, <laughs> you know, as you, as you are, you know, you're quite humorless, aren't you, when you, you, you're kind of fiercely driven and 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 i think he helped me to sort of sit back a bit and think much more widely about a variety and 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 working through people as opposed to totally working through abstract evidence and science or whatever it is so he's very very helpful and i think the other person who i mean he'd probably roll his eyes and step back a few miles to hear me say this but i i do think that um I found Simon Stevens um, very inspiring, and um, as a as a peer, and there's nothing like someone who's around your age, he's a bit younger, to to really inspire when you see someone who is so gifted. Um, and I've never so anyway, I, I I find that that inspiring. And then there have been other people who've helped, and I think Carol Black as my chair at Nuffield Trust also has been incredibly generous and, again, deeply human um, at, a, at a very personal level. So I think they've all collaterally, not direct, indirectly, um, have been um, people who I, I've, I've, I've thought about and have been inspired by. And I'm very grateful. About. But many, many other people indeed have been very, very helpful.
0: It's great to hear. It's interesting. Um, in the women that we've been talking to, there are some names that uh, that come up more than once, and and certainly Carol is is one of those people that's that's inspired a, a an awful lot of of people of the next of the next
1: generation. She's so, very can I, generous. She's very generous, yes. I, and I love that quality. I think. And it's it's something that I've had to think about over time, not not that I feel ungenerous, hopefully not, but that I would like to contribute more as time has gone on and and to other humans as opposed to focus on the issues the whole time, which is where you can often focus,
0: yes, yes it's kind of easier sometimes isn't it to to focus on the issues or, or, or the data so can I move over to the human side of things because you've had a, a stellar career um, often for women particularly who've had uh, a fantastic career there have been some difficulties some ructions ups and downs in their in their family lives so so how have you balanced all of that that's yes. something that, that the 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 young women coming through uh, when they're earlier on in their career and maybe they have their first child or or maybe they have caring responsibilities. it it appears to be a big struggle, maybe more of a struggle now for different reasons than it was for us.
1: Yes, it is a real struggle. And I have to say, for me, having children was far more difficult than anything at work. I mean, I just some some women find it much easier and I found it really, really hard to to the the whole. um, All of it was so so different. Very, very, very wonderful, of course. Um, Well, I think what happened to me was that I had my children very late. So I'd already established quite a lot before I had them. Uh, which I think helps because I wasn't kind of forgotten about when I so I'd, I'd, I'd set up a secure perch. So I had my first child when I was 41 and my second child at 46. Um, and uh, by the way, in brackets, please don't leave it that late, um, to close brackets, because <laughs> uh, it's very, very risky. I just was lucky, and lots of people are not. But anyway, as a result of having it late, two things. One is that, as I said, you'd achieve more, you're slightly known, you have a secure platform, and you have a bit more money. So that meant that um, I could afford a nanny um, who made it all possible. Um, and also that, um, so it, because I had the nanny and I was then able to go back. So what I did was with both of them, I had six months off to have uh, maternity leave. And then I went back full time after that. And I was very, very lucky to have a very good nanny, the same nanny throughout for nearly 10 years. And so she made it all possible. Um, But even even with the nanny who was not living, she was 9 till 6 or 8.30 till 6. it's just a long, it's a long graft, because you know, we all know about working evenings. We all know about uh, so you come in, deal you know deal with the children, feed them, read them to them, give bath, them put them to bed, and then go back to work, which is what I did until about 10, 30, 11. um and you're exhausted, of course, when they're when they're ill. But I just sort of I don't know how, looking back now, how it was done, but you just you just do that. So that so, that's how it did. My husband uh, is also working full time. He's an academic. Um, so what was good about that was that he he didn't tend to work away very much. So he was at home and he had regular hours. Um, so he, but he, like me, had to work in the evenings because he's writing papers and all that. But it was a regular, predictable style of job. So be, our household, it was very, very evenly balanced in terms of domestic contribution. Um, I can say that with hand on heart. So I, I was very lucky. So solid support from the nanny and solid support from from husband and both evenly distributed. Um, so it, it so it that, it kind of worked that way. But it was a lot of effort. Like uh, and my my experience is no different to other women. I'm sure in terms of, you know, it, it's it's a lot of hard graft. You have to keep moving forwards, though. Um But but the other thing I I, I learned was even if you feel you feel half dead when you turn up to work, no one notices. So don't (laughs) apologise too much.
0: (laughs) I also feel that with my children. I I felt as if uh, they had a few years where I neglected them terribly. And quite frankly, now they didn't seem to notice. So Well, yes, there is that.
1: I stopped I did ask them questions early on. Uh, you know, and in their sort of between the ages of thirteen to fifteen, particularly these are girls, of course they trowel it on you. But after they kind of forget and then they they sort of sort of like the idea. It's a sort of badge of honor that their mum works, you know, there's a lot of so so yes, so so it's uh, you can't win either way, so just don't birch yourself and just you'll 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 be, as Winnicott said, a good enough mother. That's the most important thing.
0: Fantastic. That's fantastic. And and now also, what what do you do to what do you do to relax? And also, what are you going to say to these young women that are that are coming through that will keep them going and inspire them? So, relaxing first.
1: <laughs> well, um, I, I I suppose I, I mentioned early on that 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 I had this arty sort of side. So so my way of I, I wouldn't say it's relaxing it, is a is is to paint. So I I do do quite a lot of my spare time if I've got something at the weekend, as always with a brush in hand or some some project or other. And it's been so fulfilling to be able to do more of that as time has gone on. Um, So if you feel that I guess the obvious point is that if you feel you've got some things there that, you know, are part of your identity and that. Perforce will be stifled a bit because medicine is so all consuming and always on. And indeed, childcare is always on. But but try to give some oxygen to those things, um, because that 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 way lies some kind of contentment. And otherwise, things can just get too grim and it can bite you if you don't if you just deny this this stuff. So permission to enjoy uh, permission to pursue, however, whatever it is. And I've been it does keep me going that extra thing. And I suppose the other thing is I run. I, I kind of um, I run. Well, I, I say run it. Running is probably too overclaiming. It's probably jog uh, every day. So and that that really does help.
0: Gosh. Well, fantastic. Words of words of wisdom. Um, any more advice to the next generations coming through? I think you've actually probably already given them
1: quite a lot of pearls. Well, I think one thing, if you don't mind me saying that I was, um, Jane, you and I recorded a podcast last week and um, we had three women of different generations speaking and the, the, the uh, 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 to generations of doctors and the, the, the youngest, gen- the, the person who was in their 20s, I found really inspiring. And that's because she, what was interesting there is that People of my generation, I think, I don't know whether you think the same. Jane had to to super adapt in order to almost pull yourself out of shape in order to, because you felt you had to behave in a certain way in order to, mm. you know, make progress. Or um, and and actually, what's really nice to hear is that I think some some of the younger generation don't want to do pull themselves out of shape in that way. They actually want to give respect and 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 airing to other parts of their experiences and identities which matter and this is much more of a modern phenomenon which i think is really healthy so i would encourage people to um to do that clearly everyone has to adapt but but not to pull yourself out of shape is very important so i'm really so please keep going younger people if you're hearing this and um and 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 you don't have to compromise. Um, the the ground has been made made. Uh, the running's been made by earlier generations. So so hopefully you're able to give some more oxygen to other parts of your character that brings more of yourself to the to the work situation, and so that you don't have to deny things that are actually really quite important to you.
0: Thank you. So that's wonderful advice. So so whoever's out there, remain you. Be you. Don't allow the world to to move you out of shape. Exactly. Fantastic. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. That's been really inspirational. I'm sure people will really love listening to you whilst they're multitasking. Indeed. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for listening. There are many more medical women talking in this series of podcasts. Please have a listen to some of the other inspiring women. You'll definitely find something to inspire you.